Hello and welcome to another SPAC Insider podcast. I'm Nick Clayton, and this week, SPAC Insider's founder, Christy Marvin, speaks with Niccolo Damasi to discuss his many SPAC deals of the past few years. Niccolo explains why he thinks DMY SPACs have punched above the mean and what factors resonate with investors before, during, and after close. Christy and Niccolo also discuss how the current SPAC backlog will sort itself out and what a healthy SPAC environment looks like for the years to come. Take a listen. So thanks, Nicola, for joining us today. Uh, I'm excited to get into it and talk a little SPAC shop. Um, but before we start, though, I wanted to give you a proper introduction. So for the benefit of listeners, we have Nicolo DeMasi on the podcast. Uh, Nicolo has headed up five DMY technology SPACs, all of which he was CEO, uh, with one additional SPAC currently in registration with ADMY Technology Group. But of those five DMY technology specs, three have already completed their transactions. So with uh, in order of DMY one, two, and three, we've got Rush Street Interactive, an online sports and casino betting company, Genius Sports, which is a data and technology provider for the sports betting and media ecosystem, and IonQ, which is in the quantum computing field. Um, but DMY four, which will be headed to a shareholder vote shortly for its combination with Planet Labs, um, which should happen uh, relatively shortly. Uh, and you also recently priced DMY5 back in October of this year, which is currently out searching for a target company. However, um, what has been pretty remarkable has been both the speed at which you've completed your transactions as well as their performance. Um, so for context, the first DMY only IPO'd in February of 2020, but you will have closed four deals after Planet Labs in under two years, uh, which is remarkably fast. In fact, I did a little number crunching ahead of this, and your average time from IPO to announcement is 3.9 months. Um, but further to that, the, the average trading price for your three completed, completed specs is currently uh, $19.82, which is well above the $10 unit issuance price of the IPOs. But there's even more. Um, you also have an average redemption percentage of just 1.1%. So clearly, you're doing something right. <laughs> um, it, it's, it's an impressive track record, particularly for its consistency. So broadly, what, what do you attribute to your success? I, uh, I think that is all an accurate introduction, Christy. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, I can't say it so well myself, but I will uh, attempt to refer people to this podcast in the future. Um, we, we consider ourselves to be approaching the ecosystem from a high quality perspective. And we sort of feel like we're doing this the way that you're supposed to do this, if I were to put it that way. You know, look, they say it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. The reality is for, for myself and my partner, Harry Yu, it's more like 60 years uh, to be an overnight success. So Harry and I have done literally 60 years uh, of our careers in the public markets. Uh, his are a little more than mine, but it adds up to about 60. Um, we have, let's see, we have run or sat on the board of and shared a committee of 25 public companies. We have done hundreds of quarterly earning reports sitting in the CEO or CFO chair. We've done uh, about four dozen IPOs and secondaries. We've done almost 200 M&A transactions as a public company leader. So to be honest, Christy, I, I kind of attribute this to one thing, which is Harry Yu, uh, who used to be the CFO of Oracle, Accenture, and EMC, and myself, like Harry and I are used to making decisions through the lens of being the guys that will be carrying the bag two years from now. And if you're, not, you know, there are people that do SPACs who I jokingly say are recovering investment bankers, venture capitalists, are probably like, not all of them are judged by where they're going to be with that share price in two years. Uh, Harry and I are, have made our careers out of it. And so we have been 
uh, I think, schools in what public investors expect, how they expect to be communicated with, what creates the right ecosystem dynamics for shareholders of every type, stage, and size. And at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is be long-term greedy, right? So we, we're not the most profitable SPAC franchise in the world. Uh, we simply have the best post-close share price performance. Uh, and we're very careful. So whilst we move quickly, we're very careful in our diligence and we're very thoughtful about ensuring there is cultural fit. The other thing that I am an evangelist for is, you know, this flight to quality that has been accelerating in the SPAC ecosystem the last, I'd say, quarter or two. You know, it's coming from the right place, which is when people start to view an IPO or a SPAC IPO in particular as an alternative to a trade sale, you know, you're not, you're not going to be in a good shape ecosystem-wise pretty quickly. And I would say that that sort of started to happen nine months ago. And I'd say that that's more or less getting cut off right now. Harry and Nicola and DMY, we've approached all of our deals as traditional IPOs. That means we price conservatively, we forecast conservatively. And if you look at what's driven our share price performance, it's fundamental beat and raise every single time. If you look at where we raise pipes at, relative to where we are, even at the close, let alone the first or second or third earnings call, we make sure that every generation of shareholders can participate and do well. So whether or not you're a DMY IPO shareholder or a pipe participant or investor, or you buy the stock in the open market after it's announced, or you buy the stock after the first earnings call, all of these people have to do well. And at the end of the day, we're proud of the fact that if you look at the shareholder bases that we've created, particularly you know two or three earnings calls after our IPOs close, they are of a virtually identical caliber uh, that you'd expect from any other IPO mechanism. So if you do direct listing or an S1, you know, you're going to end up with a roster of people looks the same as what we've done. And that's, you know, I think sort of testament to our approach. And yes, it's a consistent performance. Um, we don't overpay for things. We price fairly for everybody. We forecast fairly. And all of these things, Chris, you're going to laugh. They're easy to say and apparently very hard to do because there, there are 500 or whatever the number is of SPACs below us in the league table that aren't doing this, right? They're doing something else. Last thing I'll say is, you know, this is a unique asset class with a unique set of skills. And what Harry, you and I have been doing our whole careers is leading public companies with a lot of inorganic growth. So we know we've made mistakes too, right? I mean, we're just not making them now. We did them 20 years ago or 40 years ago. There's a whole other generation of people who are learning on the job right now uh, you know, attempting SPAC IPOs. And I always say, you know, look, it's kind of, it's kind of like brain surgery. You don't, you don't hire the cheapest guy who's learning on the job. <laughs> that's that's probably not the way to do it. You know, you know what I mean? Right. Like how many times are you going to IPO your company? So yeah, I mean, it's, it's been interesting as, as we have uh, driven consistent success. Uh, we obviously have a big track record with investors, success begets success, but we're very focused on maintaining our position, our consistency, and, and being long-term greedy. So you're, you've seen us stick to the same size zone. You've never seen us rush out and raise a 600 million billion dollars back. Like we, we know where we are good and where our investor base you know, will follow us. And also where Harry and my skill sets resonate most powerfully with, with entrepreneurs um, or CEOs on the partner company side. And I, and I refer to them, you know, I refer to them as partner companies. Other people call them targets. That's not the right mentality. 
Mm. Right. Like this, this is a partnership. Uh, and if we don't all decide how we're going to win together, we're probably not going to win together. <laughs> if everyone's trying to do something different in the deal, it's probably not going to go that well. Right. So cultural fit, uh, Christy, you know, first and foremost, it actually drives a higher percentage of long-term success in the public, you know, on markets than most people uh, tend to ascribe. Well, you know, you, you bring up a, a lot of good points. In particular, you mentioned experience, right? Like, and, uh, you know, you wouldn't exactly want the cheapest brain surgeon or the one with the least amount of experience. But let's let's talk a, bit, a little bit about warrants, right? Because sometimes the warrant size sort of indicates experience. And uh, you've done five SPACs. Your first had a half warrant. Your second had a third warrant. Then it was Actually, a quarter. Then it was a fifth. Yeah. We, right, we, right. Exactly. We kept going. Yeah. So I guess my question to you is like, does warrant size actually matter when negotiating with a company? Um, like, does it does it affect the the outcome of a deal? Um, and would you ever do a warrantless spec? So we we're in a unique situation uh, to be candid, which is if you look at the top ten best performing spacs uh, post close as a franchise, you know we're at the top of the of the entire league table. And I would say this like for anybody considering a spac IPO. I don't know why you would work with anybody who's not on that top 10 list because they've all done more than one and they're, and they've all learned something. That's point one. Um, point two, I think that as franchises get built, just like you saw in every other asset class, right. From the hedge fund space, the VC space, the PE space, the, you know, the, the indexers, um, you know, brands become pretty powerful, right? So yes, in theory warrants, Warrant coverage and dilution matters, but it is swamped, in my opinion, by other factors, particularly in a market where there's a flight to quality going on. There's a whole bunch of people that can't raise money, can't raise pipes. I mean, people ask me all the time, how come our pipes are always so oversubscribed? I mean, our third deal was, I think we had well over a billion dollars of demand, you know, kind of thing. And it's because we price properly, we forecast properly, and we do what we say we're going to do. And when you do that quarter after quarter, people have a memory that they remember, right? And so these sorts of things for us are gonna matter more, I believe, than most other things in and around the DMY franchise. For other people, if it's two people, you know, two SPAC sponsors on their first deal and they're both the same underwriter and they're both basically the same quality, like, yeah, it, it'll be a decider if one of them's at a half and one's at a fifth, if all else is equal. But in this industry, like with most things, there's a lot of things that are not equal, <laughs> right? Um, and so I, I think the, I think the, I think companies, you know, who sort of rushed out and hired sell side M and A advisors, have had all sorts of sometimes nonsense spooled into their heads. And a number of investment banks. And I listen, I, I, I sort of hold responsible the, you know, in some cases ridiculous issuance. Uh, not just the, the bankers and the lawyers, but also the accountants and everyone else that sort of aids and abets people that really have no business doing this, taking a crack at it, right? Um, and I similarly think that, you know, banks that have quote unquote gone sell side, like as M&A engagement, caused a lot of the issues that, you know, transpired in over the summer in Q3. And they are How so stabilized now? or stabilizing now, mm -hmm. but fundamentally, you don't hire a sell side M&A, you know, advisor to run an IPO process. That's not how it works. And so we at DMY stay away from those. We, we don't compete with people who wanna find out if my warrant coverage is higher or lower than yours, because that's, that to me is not the right reason to work with us. Mm -hmm. um, what I always tell our partner companies is like, look, 
if you're looking to do this as an alternative to a trade sale, work with somebody else. <laughs> That's not going to be us. We, we are here to build long-term enduring public companies. You know, we IPO things that are at two, $3 billion valuations, and we want to build 10, $20 billion market cap companies in the next, you know, five years type thing. Um, and so I'm very upfront with people, particularly now, you know, when we've done five of them and we've seen that it works, you know, we're, we're not the easiest, you know, the least demanding, we're not the cheapest probably, but we have Goldman Sachs and we get results and we know how to convert effort into reward. And almost nobody else in the ecosystem really knows how to convert effort into reward. You know, you touched on this flight to quality. Where do you, where do you see this going in 2022, let's say, as far as like the sheer amount of new issuance? Do you think at some point there's some sort of break put on it, either regulatory, either, either done from a regulatory standpoint or maybe just from a market standpoint? Maybe the market has some hand in, in slowing it down. Yeah, the, the market already has had a hand in slowing it down, which is there is a large number of SPACs. You'll know better than I because you track this stuff. And I actually, I only track the top 10, Christy. I don't know the other, the other 490 or whatever it is, right? But there's, <laughs> there's a bunch of deals, you know, that are in basically market, what I'd call market workout. There's a bunch of people priced poorly. The pipe's not going to stick. Deals have blown up. People don't get along. Things are getting repriced. You know, people are trying to find backstops, all sorts of basically, you know, call it debt for equity swipe, top swap type behavior is going on for a lot of deals. So that is happening because people did not pursue a long-term get greedy, you know, get greedy and wealthy slowly approach. They, they went for something else. They overpriced. They found out that at the end of the day, um, if you win a SPAC IPO because you paid more than everybody else, that's probably not, you know, going to be great for you or the company pretty soon, maybe even at the shareholder vote certainly a quarter later, won't be good for you on redemptions. and holds it. So, so investors are withholding capital is what I'm saying. Slowly but surely, investors across the board in all categories are withholding capital. And quite honestly, I, I'm cheering them on, Christy, right? <laughs> I'm cheering them on. I think, well, I think investors have to withhold capital for quality. They needed to demand the same approach that DMY uses. And so should everyone else who's a service provider of the ecosystem, right? Because we all need to clean up this ecosystem and keep it healthy uh, if it's going to keep going, you know, in, in its same state for the next decade. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you. They're withholding capital on the back end, the DSPAC. The problem is, is the IPOs on the front end, right? Um, we priced 23 IPOs last week alone. I mean, that's, that's Q1 of 2021 numbers. So there really isn't any break on the IPO front. And that's because a lot of these deals have just become an ARB play. And so that is yeah. that to me is the more concerning part, right? Because we'll have just a ton of specs out searching um, with potentially poor quality D specs. So I guess my next question to you is: Do you foresee a ton of liquidations? Because I personally don't. Yeah. I think yeah. there will be just be a lot of deals that just I foresee a lot forever. of zombies and a lot of workout, right? Yeah. And so and I and I do think. Look, we put our time in in the IPO, and we put our time in across the entire DMY lifecycle to make sure that we are getting fundamental investors who are here for the right reasons. And you can see that in our deals because our, our, our guys hold for the vote and most of them, you know, basically no one redeems basically and people stick around and they get, my investors are here to make 50%, you know, in five quarters, not 5% in five weeks or five days. 
Um, not everyone can say that, very few people can say that, um, but we've obviously done it and proven it. I would also point out that a lot of those IPOs you referenced for last week or whatever, like I would bet an unfathomably high percentage of those have what I call some unnatural structuring going on. So there's all sorts of weird stuff going on, right? There's people that are, I would just say basically bribing people with, you know, free founder shares. There, you know, I've heard all sorts of convertible, I've heard all sorts of nonsense. We don't do that, we're very vanilla. And honestly, um, I think anyone who kicks the can from the IPO to the back end is gonna find out what a poor decision that was. So, so, so think about this, how this works. So I have a quality share of the base and I'm going through a DSPAC and my guys and gals here for the right reason. And your team was just here to make five cents, right? On the ARBs, right? Like you're gonna end up with a redemption mess and a workout and you won't end up making any money either. That's the irony here is the SPAC sponsors that do that will end up giving away all of their founder economics to get the back end done, right? So it'll become a Pyrrhic victory, right? And so I'm predicting a lot of Pyrrhic victories in 2022 and 23. So a lot of Pyrrhic victories where there's a whole slew, a whole class of SPAC sponsors that will be one and done never again, uh, right? There will be then be another chunk of them that are zombies. So they run out of time, couldn't get something done. They've got a little listed shell with 10 million bucks in it. They'll be the zombies. I agree with you. There'll be relatively few total close-up shops in two years because that's not what people do. What they do is they go back and they give up founder economics and they get extension after extension and they try and find a lemonade stand, right? right? right. But you know, you're just not going to compete with the the big girls and the big boys, as I put sort of put it right. This this is this is the same for me as everyone's a venture capitalist. I mean, I can invest in my cousin's lemonade stand too, right? But I'm not Sequoia, right? And so what's what's happening already is flight to quality and brand. And the irony is in a world of clutter, brands and track records matter exponentially more. When you don't, you know, I, I built some of the first games and apps for the, you know, the Apple and the Android app stores 11 years ago, 12 years ago. And people used to say in the dot-com boom, you might remember this, you know, the dot-com boom, people were writing in the 90s about how, you know, this could be the death of the brand. You know, you don't need yellow paint. Like you just go online, you search for a plumber. Now, of course, what happens in a cluttered world of the open internet or the Apple app store with 3 million people go like, well, I don't, I don't know who to trust. <laughs> I don't know who to work with. And so ironically, what these ecosystems do is they drive more power behind the name, you know, the brand you recognize, the people that are consistent, right? So all of these dynamics, ironically, I'm finding very helpful, right? Because Imagine what my IPO sort of deck looks like, or my partner company. It's like, look, we're not the cheapest, you know, we're, we're not the easiest. We work you hard, but we get results. If you don't want that, that's fine. <laughs> right? Like, you know, you, you, can, you can do something else, somebody else. And, and similarly with, with shareholders, it's like, look, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in some, like I, I allocate, Chrissy, I allocate down and we are, you know, success, like we get success. So like in my latest back, IPO, you know, we were as, as oversubscribed, by the way, on, on the most recent IPO for DMY as I've had on any deal, including my first one. And so everyone told me it was a difficult market. It was, you know, last, last quarter, but people save money for people at the top of the league table and, you know, heading in that direction. And we had so much money offered at, offered to us, to be honest, that I, I had the luxury of allocating down 
dramatically, I mean, 95%, you know, people that may not want to be here for the vote or may not want to be here for the pipe or whatever, right? And so this, this mechanism of sort of success driving a flywheel is playing out. It will play out even harder in the next 18 months, I think, than we've seen, believe it or not. Uh, there'll, be, there'll be successive waves of what happened in Q3, probably, you know, every year and every sort of crop. And, on, and honestly, I'm cheering this on, right? It's healthy for the ecosystem. It really is. Um, it's healthy for every participant. We, we all, all of us, from you to Goldman Sachs, to the, you know, the law firms, the you know, accounts, like we all need this to be a sustainable chunk of the overall IPO market. And I say the overall IPO market, not m and market. So whatever our market share is, 20, 30, 40% of total IPOs, I'd like us to hold on to that you know, as an ecosystem. Um, and so I view my job as really just one thing, which is like building shareholder bases and making sure the whole ecosystem around DMY does well every deal. The whole ecosystem has to do well, not just some people, everyone has to do well. It makes a ton of sense. So I actually kind of wanted to also ask about timing, right? Because I, I did mention earlier that the average time from IPO to announcement for your deals is 3.9 months, right? Which is pretty quick. However, again, I hate to reference the most recent deals, but um, the average time given to SPACs that are IPOing right now is uh, just a little over 15 months. Uh, most are either 12 months or 15 months or 18 months. Now, you have gone through four uh, DSPACs at this point. How, how difficult is that going to be for those deals to try to complete within 12 to 15 months? I mean, is that, is that just uh, an extension nightmare waiting to happen? Look, I, I think the average time to get through a quality process with the SEC from a sponsor who knows what they're doing has done this before has definitely elongated in the last two years, right? It's gone from kind of a three-month process to at least 50% longer, in some cases, 100% longer, right? So um, we're, you know, we are quite delighted with DMY4 and the fact that we, you know, we announced um, in, you know, in July and we're voting, you know, basically end of November, early December type thing, um, got through the reviews right, right, on, right on schedule, to be honest. Um, very few, I think, SPAC sponsors can say that. And you're correct that you can't shorten the, the DSPAC. You can't, you can't order the SEC around. So that's an uncompressible part of the calendar and the schedule, right? And so I think you need to allow six months for that is, is, my, is my sort of view. It could, it could be more. And, and honestly, you'll notice that all of my deals are in categories where I am not, say, the eighth electric vehicle company <laughs> coming along, hoping that the world could, right? So we, we, we stay away from areas that you know, have, ha- you know, have had or could be prone to say somebody pushing a truck down the hill and saying that that's the truck in motion, <laughs> right? Um, and so I think the SEC is gonna scrutinize. And we also stay away from, frankly, the other, you know, the other piece of nonsense, which is like, oh, like uh, the business plan's not funded because somebody redeemed, right? Like our, our businesses are all fully funded on the pipe and anything the trust is a bonus, right? But we also don't take on things that need vast amounts of money to like make any sense. Because honestly, like, it's like public company 101, right? You can't do a fundraise, whether it's an IPO or a secondary, if it's a bridge to nowhere. You just can't do that, right? And yeah. so I think, I think SEC scrutiny on people with either of those behaviors is deservedly high, as are people that miss numbers. I mean, that's another, honestly, I, I, I think the sort of greatest sin in all of this are the people that have, have done you know, pipes 
and then decided they can't make those numbers during the DSPAC, Christy. That always amazes me, during the DSPAC. And in some cases, some people have lowered numbers twice during the DSPAC and they get, you know, 90 or 99% redemptions. I'm like, of course you do. You completely <laughs> deserve that, yeah. right? If you literally sell people a bill of goods and two, three months later, you're like, kidding. Well, I mean, obviously you're going to get a bunch of, I mean, you know, what, what did you expect is going to happen, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's just basic sanity. You know, the people that do this, I'm convinced have never run a public company because they've never faced the ire of what it's like to, to, to miss a number on a quarterly earnings call, right? Like you remember it the rest of your life if that ever happens. Well, do you think, do you think maybe they're getting, you know, poor advice from their financial advisors, you know, people sort of like advising on this deal because they are looking at it as an M&A transaction rather than an IDF yes. transaction? Yes, oh, absolutely. Like I said, I hold responsible the excessive issuance as well as, you know, some of the frenzy that happened, you know, six, nine months ago. Frankly, bankers on both sides of it, right? They, they should not, you know, when, look, even my dear friends at Goldman Sachs, who I love to death, and they're a great firm, and we, we do a lot of business with them, all of our SPACs. Um, you know, when I did my first one, they did one a quarter, IPO a quarter. Then I think it became one a month, and I'm pretty sure it became one a week. <laughs> and like, I'd like Goldman Sachs to go back to one a quarter, mm-hmm. right? Like, say, everyone's got to kind of row back here and go, you know, end of the day, there has to be a greater premium put on quality because goodness knows the SEC is placing a greater, you know, uh, hurdle on this across the ecosystem. Well, would you be willing to pay the bankers more in order to have them slow down that process? <laughs> right, because it, it does become about fees, I'm sure. <laughs> and I think I think personally that we pay the bankers enough to be where <laughs> they were on my first deal because mm-hmm. we we pay them kind of the same amount. I don't I don't know why DMY five should have a hundred times more SPACs going out than DMY one, right, right, one, right? I mean, right. So, so ultimately, you know, look, um, yes, I agree with you that everyone's incentives in the advisory ecosystem are a bit different, right? Banker, you know, bankers and accountants are taking on volume. Um, you know, lawyers and accountants in particular need volume. The bankers have to care though about their long-term franchise, agree. which yeah. is their same as my long-term franchise, which is institutional investors. If Fidelity and T. Rowe and Capital and Wellington, you know, don't do well with me, that's probably the thing that I am most concerned about to be a long-term greedy, long-term successful franchise. Makes sense. There's one area we haven't talked about, right, which is retail. You're very popular on Twitter. The retail crowd definitely likes uh, the DMY deals for sure. But what are the challenges of negotiating a deal that you do know will probably appeal to retail. Is, is that challenging to negotiate a deal? And, and how do you sort of work your way around that? So we, we love our retail support base. Believe it or not, uh, our allocation in the IPOs, the pipe, like, you know, it's close to zero, right? So if you look at why redemptions are low in our shareholder votes, you'll notice we never have to come back for a second attempt at the vote. And that's because it's like a 80, 90% institutional base every time. I literally <laughs> look down the list and go like, these are 20 people we're gonna meet with and call. Um, I'm not saying that I don't make an effort to provide a feedback loop with retail investors. We, we absolutely do. They like our deals for the same reason Fidelity does. And they've, you know, they've led two of our pipes, BlackRock's led one. I mean, you know, everyone likes our deals, Christy, because they've doubled. <laughs> right. Like a, a lot of people like yeah. the doubles in a year. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, and I'm not by any means promising that that is achievable every time. 
but I will promise that we're doing our darndest to price conservatively, forecast conservatively, and make sure the whole ecosystem has a good experience with us, right? Mm -hmm. And so we will continue to do that for institutions first and, and retail probably, you know, second in that order. You're not going to see us ever build an IPO book that's, you know, half retail or something like that, even though we might be able to pull it off these days. I mean, who, who knows? Um, I think it's important for oversubscription, but ultimately I'm looking for those holders at all times who are going to be here for years, not weeks. Yeah, agree. And so it's only to answer your question. It doesn't factor into my negotiation with the business okay. at all, not once. And it never will, because at the end of the day, what I'm trying to do is the same thing that Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley's doing for a premier tech IPO. I am trying to make sure that you know the response out of the gates and a year later and two years later is going to be you know up and to the right and quality every step of the way. So that whether you're retail buying our stock or you're failure buying the pipe or you're Wellington buying after the close, everyone can say, hey, for my hold period, I'm going to have a good experience here. Makes sense. So I'm going to pivot a little bit here. Um, so it's, you know, obviously specs earlier this year, Q1 in particular, and, and late 2020, everything was trading straight up an announcement, um, which was, I imagine, significantly easier to talk to companies. Um, how is the posture of companies right now? I mean, obviously you're in the market with DMY5, looking for a, a partner, not a target, a partner. <laughs> um, but you know, how has the posture changed? Uh, maybe it hasn't for you because you know, as you said, you know, you do have a history of success. But I have to imagine it's gotten a little bit more challenging uh, talking to companies about going public with a SPAC right now. Is that is that the case? Oh, yeah, for you? there is no doubt that there is a class of businesses. So look, we we look, you know, our, our methodology for finding a business, to be honest, Christy, is like, hey, if you can pull off an S one IPO or direct listing in two years. I might want to talk to you now. <laughs> That's effectively what DMI has done every single deal, right? Is like just pick a great business, you know, a year or two early. I think um, there's a class of businesses, you know, that definitely, when they're a year away, are starting to go. You know, I, I don't need the drama around this, mm. right? Uh, and I don't want to be swept up in the drama, and I don't want a sell side, you know, M and A bank telling me that I should run an auction process of 20 SPACs, right? Um, and so there are some companies that are rightly saying, you know, look, I think, you know, SPAC market share, it was 50% of IPOs, I think, over the summer or at some point this year. Uh, my prediction is that that's gonna drop, not increase. I, I think it's gonna be more like, you know, 30%. It's probably a third of IPOs long-term, it's not half, I think. So it'll be, a, it'll be driven by CEOs, founders, but boards also, and shareholders are, are getting, you know, getting, I think, a little bit more involved around how they're writing checks and what their checks are associated with. Um, I think underwriter quality has come to the forefront. I mean, you know, why, why would you ever do a, a SPAC IPO with a tier three underwriter if there's a tier two underwriter that will do a normal IPO in, in six or nine months, right? Um, and so a balanced view is definitely, is definitely transpiring. Does it impact DMY? I mean, you're correct. Like, if we're able to cream off the top few percent of deals, you know, you, you kind of are going to hang in there with the cream of the crop at all times. But absolutely, I mean, there, there are businesses that I think have grown understandably more skeptical uh, about a number of features. And, you know, look, I, I've been, I have been a little disappointed 
by some institutional investors who, you know, have had bosses, CEOs of their firm being as indiscriminate as anything, right? So there have been people who have been handed down orders in some places about, you know, sell all your pipes. <laughs> you really? Know, really? Sell all your positions. I mean, you know, that, that kind of thing has, well, over the summer, I think that definitely happened. Q3, that definitely happened. I, I think, I mean, you can't get these kinds of performances. If you look at, you know, what you track, you can't get that little performance without people saying things like that, right? Right. Um, and so I like to work with, you know, institutions that take the long view, that are here for the right reasons, that have, have been in this market a long term, long time, and will be in this for the long term. Um, no doubt that there is a, there was a downward fluctuation in company perception last quarter. Will it stabilize in Q4 and Q1? Probably, but it'll stabilize at a lower level, which will pressure all the other uh, dynamics you and I've been talking about for the last few minutes, right? So it will pressure who gets turned into a zombie who's on their first back and all that kind of thing, right? Um, I, I would argue to some extent, you know, Christy, there, there used to be a SPAC IPO oligopoly between kind of Citibank and Deutsche, hmm. right? You know, today, it's hard to not think that Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley haven't stolen some of that thunder, right? So they, they, they've been able to pick off the top 10% of, you know, sponsor teams kind of thing, right? And so I would, yeah, I would say JP Morgan now too, right? I mean, it's definitely more yeah. distributed, yeah. Yeah, well, well, but I mean, you know, people that used to not do SPAC IPOs have brands and they're, they're pushing, they're cramming down people that don't have the same brand in certain categories. Same mm -hmm. thing will happen here. We will cram down other people that don't have our track record, right? And it will have knock-on effects, right? All, all the way down. Yeah, I hear you. It brings up an interesting point though. Um, you know, you mentioned that that it is a little bit different now talking to companies. I mean, we now have 537 SPACs um, that have been priced in 2021 alone. Um, I believe it's 530 out searching for targets. I'd have to go back and check. Uh, it was recently updated this morning, but 530 SPACs. I mean, you know, the question I am always, uh, I always get is, are there enough companies out there that want to go public with a spec? I mean, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, obviously it's competitive right now. Teams with more experience, such as the DMY team, they'll have a leg up, but let's assume everybody's a good team and there are 530 SPACs out searching. Are there enough companies that want to go public with a spec? Yeah, so this is a rate limiter for sure. And it addresses one of your earlier questions on where are we gonna be in 22 and 23, the ecosystem. When I did my first SPAC, you know, we were coming off of a vast reduction in compression in the number of total public companies in the United States, right? So dot-com boom, we had 9,000 roughly. Um, I tr it shrunk all the way down to 3,000 at the trough. And now I think we're back to 6,000. We might be back at 6,500. I don't, I don't know exactly. Um, and so I feel like the market's growing, the economy's growing. I feel like there's going to be, you know, a, a real rate limiter that kicks in at 9,000, 10,000 total public companies. And, and then it will be complete hard, you know, flight to, to quality here where it'll be, you know, probably 50% uh, market share for traditional IPOs, you know, and it'll be split between, you know, maybe 20% direct listings, 30% SPACs or something or something like that, right, um, is what I, what I anticipate happening. Because uh, there's innovation in all IPO mechanisms, right? The, the SPAC IPO is an innovation, but so are all of these hybrid direct listing 
quasi underwritten deals that happen. And remember, I can only think of Slack and Spotify as true 100% direct listing IPOs that have ever been done in history. The mm -hmm. rest of them are all quasi underwritten backstop with direct listing because people think it sounds cool. <laughs> you know, to be honest, right? That's really what goes on here. Um, and so, you know, yeah, look, that, that to me is the ultimate guardrail. I do think that things will slow down as the number of public companies trends back towards long-term trend averages. Yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense. And, you know, as you mentioned, no matter how many SPACs we're, we're pushing out at IPO right now, it does sound like it will limit itself regardless in a year or two, right? Just based on the numbers of what you just said. Yeah, look, I mean, there was only like, forget 530, there was like 30 other SPACs on my first one is what it feels <laughs> like anyway. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying we get back to 30, but 530 probably needs to be at more like 130 uh, in, my, in my mind for the ecosystem to compete as effectively as we would like uh, from a quality perspective with other IPO approaches. Yeah. And by the way, you know, you mentioned your first spec. What was that like for you, like that process? Because I imagine, I mean, this was the first time you had done a spec transaction. What was the most challenging aspect of that for you? And what, what did you take away as like the biggest learning experience doing your first spec? Well, fortunately, a couple of things. One, um, I looked at doing this back the first time in 2007 after I sold my first public company. I then, uh, believe it or not, was in dialogue with my SPAC partner, Harry Yu, with his first SPAC, GTY. And you know, he did that with Citibank in 2016. He, he actually talked to a business I was running that was private in 2017 you know, or 18. Um, and so I experienced a bit of the process from the, you know, the partner company perspective. Harry and I then spent almost two years you know, 18 months plus working through the thesis for what became, you know, DMY1 or DMYT. So Harry learned a lot of inside baseball from his first SPAC IPO uh, and backend. And I, when he and I spent a lot of time, you know, creating a fully differentiated thesis, right? Which is, you know, that we were going to add a lot of operating value and we were also going to focus in a specific area, which was the mobile app ecosystem for DMY1. And honestly, it was one of the most oversubscribed deals Goldman's ever done, right? They, they were delighted. They still remember it. I mean, it was, it was for, for the, it was a small deal, but it was again, you know, in the, in the five, six X oversubscription category, because it was such a unique thesis with, with a uniquely credible team. Harry and I are very complimentary, you know, Blue Mobile's doing well. It got sold earlier this year. Um, it was pretty easy to see that there's room for me to, you know, find other assets that could, could become a glue, you know, basically. So look, I, I learned something on every transaction. There are no special learnings from the first one because, you know, Harry, Harry had some scars and because I've been thinking about doing this back for, you know, 13 years before that. But I would say that every single deal, we refine the DMY playbook. There's no doubt about that. Every single deal, we learn something, we realize something we can do sooner or better or later or different. Or, or with different partners, because we, we have a lot of vendors in the DMY ecosystem, right? I mean, every, every deal we close, there's dozens, dozens of wires that go out to everything from lawyers to, uh, you know, PR agencies and printers and, you know, who, who knows what else. Um, everyone has to perform every deal at their best. And so we keep tabs on everyone we have a big relationship with from Goldman Sachs down to, you know, smaller, smaller uh, partners, if you will. Um, and we, and we look to make sure we always have the best people on each transaction that is appropriate to that IPO in that segment at that stage. 
Right, right. It's funny. I, I've always said uh, SPAC experience counts <laughs> like big time. <clears throat> All right. So last question for you. What, what qualities do you think make the best SPAC teams? Um, deal experience, industry experience, maybe a combination of both? Or um, I, I guess I'm asking, you know, if you were to boil it down, what qualities do you think are, are sort of necessary for a successful SPAC? I, I think having run a public company is the number one most important one. Okay. So acting as a principal where you're left carrying the bag two years later on an acquisition or a decision or a fundraise, and you're dealing with a shareholder base that is diverse and institutional with different time horizons and different approaches and durations, that is the best experience for a team. The worst experience for the team in my mind is no public market experience, you know, private company venture capital uh, only, or, uh, you know, small private M&A, like, it's just really not that relevant. It just really isn't. Um, no matter what anyone says, you're gonna you're gonna learn 90% of what you need on that first deal. It's not like you have half of it. Like you have 10% of it, right? You know, 85% will be learned on the job uh, if you're if you're a VC or a PE or a, you know an M&A person. Um, really, really, as you really point out, it's back, but it's it's its own craft, Christy. The same way that that neurosurgeons its own craft. Got, you got to be smart. Neurosurgeons are smart. They also go to school for a long time. You still don't want the person that's smart went to school. You want the one that's also actually done the surgeries for you know a decade or two. That That's who you want. <laughs> the right. practitioner who's also smart and had the right you know training, right? It makes a ton of sense. Uh, well, listen, um, this has been a real pleasure and, and highly informative, and I really want to thank you for taking the time out to speak with me. Looking forward to, to seeing what happens with DMY5 and, uh, you know, hopefully Planet Labs closes uh, shortly. Yeah, thank you, uh, Chris, for your time, and, and please do watch this space. I've enjoyed it, and I look forward to, uh, to returning.